This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 102 of the podcast. 102. Thank you for coming along with me, for making me a part of your day, your drive, wherever you squeeze these 25 minutes in uh, during your schedule. I do seriously appreciate it. Imagine with me, if you will, a bridge. It is a low bridge, a low concrete bridge. There is about three feet of clearance between the water and the underside of this bridge. And there's spider webs, lots and lots of spider webs hanging down under this thing. The water level is pretty constant because it's a spring creek, and so these spiders don't have uh, much to worry about unless they get a little bit lazy in how much tension they let out of their web because then they find themselves in danger because there are plenty of trout that sit underneath this bridge and sip all manner of insects day in, day out, all throughout the day. Uh, sunlight, darkness, rain, uh, you name it. These trout are down there and they are rising to bugs. And given the opportunity of a particularly juicy insect, either the spider itself or something that's hanging in that web, uh, gets too low and close to the water, they will jump and they will take that bug. And I watched this happen. I watched this happen multiple times, countless times, I tried my hardest to get at one particular fish that was engaged in this kind of feeding behavior. And that's what I want to talk about today, is this spot, this fish, this creek, and uh, all of those things will remain nameless, but uh, hopefully you can, you can appreciate it. 
I love fishing Spring Creek because I've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast and write about it a lot on the website. It's just a type of fly fishing that I became familiar with as I was living both in Northern Virginia and in South Central Pennsylvania. And there's this area that uh, extends up into Central Pennsylvania and then down into kind of Central Western Virginia where it is incredibly uh, rich soil. It is uh, valleys right up against the, the Appalachian Mountains, and there is a very, very high aquifer, and there is a limestone substrate. And so you have all of those conditions that come together to create these really great fisheries consistent flows, consistent temperatures, high nutrients, which leads to high vegetation and then the macroinvertebrates that live in them and then of course the fish that call them home. There's sculpins, there's suckers, there's some other fish but of course for us what we're interested is trout and you can find browns and rainbows but uh, you can also find brook trout in some of the less disturbed spring creeks. But this spring creek in particular there was there were rainbows and there were brook trout but browns were most abundant especially in the upper reaches of the spring creek which is where this bridge was found. And I spent a lot of time fishing this creek. There's a number of spring creeks that I would spend multiple days a week on fishing in South Central Pennsylvania and I was living there. Some of them very popular. Some of them um, I honestly don't even know the names of. I know the, the, that they were feeder creeks to major spring creeks. But uh, one of the amazing things about that area was just how much water there is. Uh, if you've never been in Pennsylvania or you've just driven through it but you haven't gone off of the highways and on the back roads, it is amazing how much water there is in Pennsylvania and for a very good chunk of it, um, really State College over kind of to Lancaster and then of course down into uh, Chambersburg and Carlisle and, and that area, there's a lot of spring creeks and some of them are very sneaky. They pop up in really bizarre places. A lot of them are all on private property. You have sprawling farms, both the Amish and uh, the, the contemporary farmers have big, big farms that have spring creeks that originate and terminate into another river, but they are all on their property, and who knows what's what's in those those waters aside from those property owners um, themselves. But these are great habitats for not just trout, but large trout. I have seen some just giant fish, browns and rainbows, um, and even some pretty sizable brookies that live in just trickles and they are either seeking thermal refuge in the cold of the winter or in the heat of the summer and they spend the rest of their life in a bigger warm water river and they move up into these tiny little spring creeks and they again they can chase sculpins or they can just feast on crest bugs or anything else that's in there and so uh, you can really fish any way you want to fish you can fish big streamers you can fish nymphs but my preference given the opportunity that when it presents itself is to fish dry flies and so that is why that fish and there was a series of fish there was at least uh, a half dozen underneath this bridge were so appealing to me because they would rise as i said earlier day in day out 24 7 the only time they would stop rising is if i made a very very bad cast or i set the hook too quickly or i hooked one and it got off and then they would go down for something like four to six hours before they started rising again and talk about an exercise in patience. 
just waiting for those fish to start rising again. I, it was easier for me to leave the stream, go home, do some work, uh, do, do something, and then come back rather than try to fish on that river for another four or five or six hours and then come back to it. I just couldn't, couldn't handle it. Let me set up the, the, the picture again. So there's the bridge, and again, two and a half to three feet of clearance, and that was pretty consistent. Another thing, like I said, with the Spring Creek is you have consistent flow, so it's not like this thing ever got washed out. Uh, I never saw that water get more than two and a half feet um, from the bottom of that, that bridge. It stayed very, very consistent, so you always had all those bugs, the spider webs and the spiders, and then all of the bugs that were buzzing over the, um, the, the water. And so for those spiders, that was a a great place for them to set up shop because you had these bugs that were coming off of the water, um, very nice gravel substrate underneath that uh, bridge, and the bugs would come up off of it, or the bugs would come off of the, the banks, very, very grassy banks, and they would do what bugs do, is they try to uh, stay close to the water, but they don't try to get too far away from it, and when they're bobbing up and down, they either land in the water, the bugs, and the trout get them, or they hit the webs and the spiders get them. It was kind of a, a gauntlet that, that n nobody really survived, but it was wonderful for the fish and the spiders and the angler. Upstream, lots of different currents. So if you can picture this, upstream of this bridge, there was a really dense weed bed in the center of the stream. So this effectively created two channels going underneath this bridge. And at that point, the stream was probably about 20 to 25 feet wide. And then under the stream bank, there was no structure whatsoever. However, um, the stream kind of took a bend to the left if you're looking downstream as soon as it got out from underneath that bridge. So it created this, this faster current along the left-hand side of the, the bridge. And so everything kind of got funneled at like a 45-degree angle um, once it started going underneath the bridge. And then downstream, it got very shallow very quickly. And it stayed about a foot and a half uh, deep in most places and the stream widened up to about 35 feet and then you started to get into some weed beds. So why am I giving you all these details? Well, think about how would you approach this? So you drop a fly in from upstream. That makes the most amount of sense because you're not going to be able to cast under this thing, especially from upstream. How are you going to get a fly down there? So I would cast over the bridge and then I would make my final cast and I would leave a ton of slack in my line and the fly would drop either it would hit the concrete abutment and drop straight down or it would land maybe a foot past the the point where the bridge um, overlapped the creek and then I had all this slack in my line that was a great thing the problem was sometimes the eddies would grab the fly and the fly line would get sucked downstream and that was another way to put those fish down to have that fly line go over the top of them other times, the the lack of precision in a cast like that is it would get sucked to that left, or it would just sit in an eddy, and the whole thing would just pile up and sink and then uh, sink my dry fly. So that never worked too well. Went from the downstream side, and there just wasn't enough room to get a cast. Um, the, the water was shallower, so there was really no great way. One time, a friend and I were there, and I tried breaking my four-piece, nine-foot, uh, rod down into a two-piece, four-and-a-half-foot rod. I was only casting with those top two sections. That actually worked pretty well. The problem was is that these fish were so wary and they were so spooky that 
to get upstream of that fish and to make that good presentation of having that fly come down to it that you had to line it. You had to put something over it, even if it wasn't a whole lot of fly line um, over the particular fish that you were looking for. Another fish would get spooked that was at the tail of the pool. And so it was just a kind of a, a, a exercise in futility. I would catch fish all upstream, all downstream, dry flies, either in hatches and every once in a while on terrestrials, and then even just fish that would spontaneously rise, which are a really, really fun thing to target. But these fish were the white whales, and one in particular. There was one that I would see going up after these spiders over and over again. And it just had a big hump back, and it was a very, very dark brown, and so I knew it was a big mature brown trout and I would try and try again the, the closest I got to it was I felt the weight of that fish twice and I knew it was that fish again because just its mouth when it came up to rise it um, you could see both the upper and lower jaw come up out of the water it wasn't just a, a generic rise it was a very deliberate um, rise by this fish and the current was such that it came it appeared like straight up from the bottom and kind of came up at that fly where both both sides of the jaw were, were visible. It wasn't just the, the, the upper jaw slurping in that, that fly. And I don't know if it had to do with the way the currents moved, and so it could kind of sit and, and just kind of go up vertically or, or what. But one day, I see this fish rising, and it's just going to town. It's gorging itself on midges. There was just a, a lot of activity this summer morning, and I sat and I watched and it was just steadily rising and it was doing some of that cluster feeding that you might see uh, big trout do when there are lots of uh, small mayflies on the water and it was just eating mouthfuls of the things and just just, just there was there was no pattern but it was just over and over and over and over again and so I tied on a size 28 Griffith's gnat so it's you know a size 28 hook and then maybe four or five turns of the smallest grizzly hackle that I had and had it on a 7x tippet and I did that technique that I did before only this time um, instead of casting over the bridge I just cast kind of in a pile right in front of of the bridge and let the whole long tippet section float down. I think it's worth mentioning too that on this creek and a lot of spring creeks I really fish long tippets because I do not want that fly line on that water impacting the drift at all. I want a long long tippet section when I'm fishing these spring creeks and and I mean that tippet section not even a leader. So a lot of times I'm fishing 16 or 18 foot leaders with maybe a six to eight foot tippet section and if it's a small fly at that that means 7x sometimes that means you know 6x and what that allows you to do and how it worked to my advantage in this situation is that all of that tippet and all of that leader monofilament is uncurling and uncoiling and moving with the current based upon how the current is moving the fly and not how maybe the butt section of the leader or the, the um, head of the line is being influenced by the current. And so I made this pile cast right in front of the bridge abutment. 
and I could see it happening. It was uncoiling beautifully, and that fly just started meandering down, and I'm, I'm trying to keep my eye on the fly, but I'm also keeping my eye on the line to make sure everything's working beautifully, and I'm watching it. I'm thinking I've got maybe four more feet of drift before the, the line catches up with the leader, and it's going to influence it and pull it to the side or maybe make it stop dead or sink straight down, and I'm doing all this uh, trigonometry in my head, and that fish comes up and it takes it and it was at the perfect moment if it would have happened earlier I might have had a lot of slack in my line I mean that's a that's a lot of line to recoup very very quickly to, to make a, a good hook set without making some giant sweeping bass master you know rip its face off kind of hook set and if it was later then as I alluded to earlier then the drag and from the line or maybe even just the butt section of the leader would have pulled that fly out from the feeding lane of that fish and uh, set the hook and immediately knew it was that fish because it didn't have a whole lot of room to work so what did I say about two and a half or three feet so we're talking 36 inches and so this fish did a kind of a cartwheel and I was able to see its tail its back and its head all moving underneath that bridge and the first thing I had to do in this situation and I, and I fish a lot of bridges let me put it this way I love fishing bridges I love fishing culverts I love fishing old um, dam abutments and things like that uh, you, if you if you live someplace like the East Coast you know these things they might seem like eyesores but they've been around as long as we've been around um, as long as, as there's been um, European settlements there's been these bridges and although they weren't always concrete they were stone or or even uh, wooden uh, they have become a part of a lot of these rivers a lot of these streams and truth be told they were much much more plentiful and as you read accounts of fishing in the earlier part of the 20th century and certainly in the 19th century there's so many references to people fishing under water wheels or maybe in um, uh, you know the, the the canals and things like that and because of conservation and simply because of the changing uh, ways that we utilize energy and that we uh, conduct ourselves agriculturally a lot of these things have been abandoned and then for conservation's sake uh, many of them are removed but a lot of them still exist and so I don't see them as eyesores some of them are ugly but I see them as really neat opportunities to fish in a little bit of a different way and take advantage of a, maybe a positive alteration to the um, landscape. I mean, this was awesome. It was great for an entire miniature ecosystem from the gnats to the spiders to the sculpins to the trout. So set the hook. And I couldn't set the hook straight up because, again, the, the angle I was at with an 8.5-foot rod Lifting that thing straight up, it would have put my line or my uh, leader up against the bottom of that concrete bridge abutment, which would not have been a great thing. And so it was a, a very mindful hook set and trying to get that fish to stay upstream and away from any debris or anything that may have been on either side of that bridge. Well, got the fish into open water and it fought very, very well. And, of course, anytime you're fighting a fish on 7x tippet uh, of any size, then it's going to be a good fight because you're probably a little bit scared about what could potentially happen. And so I got in the water. I sank in silt up to my knees. I was grabbing frantically for my net while I was keeping this fish and moving his head 
back and forth and crystal clear water so I could see the size of the fish. I could see the girth of him. I could see the, the how big of a paddle tail he had and uh, just that wasn't helping me keep my cool at all. But finally got that fish in, got him in the net. He could hardly fit in the net. His head and his tail were out of the net and trying to keep his head underwater as long as I could. And there's a big... Um, grassy weed mat right in front of me if I, if, I, if I turned around and had my back to the stream and I pulled him out of the net and laid him in that the you know, he was submerged but he was on grass just giant spots there's so many color varieties within every species of trout and a lot has been written about if it has to do with the strain of the fish or even a subspecies of fish um, but in brown trout, uh, one of the characteristics of the Loch Leven variety that was brought in from Scotland is these giant um, spots where you might only have uh, enough spots to count on, on two hands on a, a big fish. And this fish had some really big spots, I mean quarter-sized spots, and he went from kind of a dark purple on the bottom up to a golden brown um, and his flanks and then a, a dark brown on top and just really interesting proportion not a hook jaw just a kind of a rounded face but a huge thick paddle tail bright red adipose fin it was a wonderful experience it was a great day it was the culmination of a lot of scouting a lot of trial and error of not just patterns and really the pattern was a it was a, an afterthought I knew anything small and buggy was going to work because these fish were being opportunistic. So and we talk about matching the hatch. We talk about picking the right fly. And I'm convinced that that day I could have thrown any dry fly with a pronounced uh, hackle in a probably anything between a 24 and a 30, and I would have been golden. I think it was more about the presentation. And I think that, that most circumstances that is probably the case that it is more about the presentation than it is about the fly. And even for these incredibly finicky, wary, and uh, selective fish that had the opportunity to, to be very, very picky, it was more about the fly being in front of him than it was about the right fly. So it was an excellent experience and a very, very fond moment for a very, very fond stream in, in my life. So why share this? Well, a few things, and I won't spend a lot of time on it because it's been 20 minutes already. But one, find a fish, chase a fish. Don't give up on a big fish because you, you missed him or you missed her and uh, you, you don't like the fact that you missed that fish. Chase them. Go after them. Fish are creatures of habit. If you see it in a spot and you spook it or you don't get it to, to come after your, your fly, then the next time you go back, you don't see it. It doesn't mean it's completely gone or somebody poached it or it, it swam to another river. Fish move around. If you go back the same time this, uh, of day uh, or same conditions, you might see it again. Maybe if you saw it the first thing in the morning, now try the first thing right before it gets dark. But chase a fish. There is a lot that you learn about fish behavior, uh, trout behavior especially, by focusing on one particular fish. Secondly, don't let circumstances deter you from trying to catch fish. I was doing the dumbest kind of cast. Like I said, taking my rod apart, purposefully tangling my line, casting onto the road, and then dragging it off so it dropped uh, right down. 
There's none of that stuff you're going to find in a casting manual. However, those are the kind of things that make fly fishing really, really fun. Thirdly, make memories, tell stories, share your angling experiences with others. Hopefully you enjoyed this little account of one of my favorite fish that I've ever caught and uh, that uh, you have some of those fish yourself. And if you do, then uh, share it with somebody. I mean, you can share it with me. Write me an email, matthewcastingacross.com. I'd love to hear it. You don't have to talk for 20 minutes, but uh, if you want to send me a couple paragraphs, then maybe I'll share it in an upcoming episode. But tell your friends. Um, even if, if they don't fish, if you can tell a fishing story to somebody who doesn't fish and keep them entertained, then that is a very, very valuable skill to have. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called Fly Line Loop to Loop, Not All Are Equal. As I was going through my reels and getting ready to do a lot of maintenance and repair and cleaning prior to the winter, I noticed that some of my loop connections are starting to look rough. A lot of times, both because it is the terminal end of your line and because there's added stress on your loops, they need help. So whether it is a welded loop, whether it is a loop that you've tied yourself, whether it is just a nail knot of leader material, uh, definitely check these out. And then if you do use loop-to-loop connections, which I do for most of my fishing, even some of my saltwater, then make sure you're using the best kind of loop. It's going to not only make your casting and presentation better, but it's also going to potentially save you some gear and some fish. So I write about that in the article called fly line loop to loop not all are equal then wednesday trout and feather october so once again this is my monthly contribution to the trout and feather website and youtube channel and this month i write about steelhead um, and not really i write about ad fluvial rainbows which is to say these are great lake steelhead slash rainbow trout. So I deal with that little naming uh, peculiarity a little bit, but then I share a couple of thoughts about how I approach this really fun fishery that you can experience, whether you live all the way in Michigan and all the way over to New York and all sorts of places in between. And then I share a couple of fly tying patterns from Trout and Feather. And these are patterns that they look complicated if you're a new fly tire, but they're the kind of thing that if you have the materials and a couple of basic skills, then you'll be cranking out beautiful fish-catching flies in a matter of minutes. This week's recommendation is the Selkirk Design on-the-fly fly rod holder. Now this is a product that I mentioned about three or four weeks ago and had the opportunity to test out and play with and write about and mention the fact that this was going to be on Kickstarter. Well, I am happy to report on their behalf that they met their goal. It was uh, for $8,000 and they actually exceeded it, which means that this product is going to production and to market. It's an awesome little device that there is a multiplicity of uses for. It's really cool to see somebody just try to create something both to meet their own need and the needs of their fellow anglers. So you can check out the link on the show notes to this podcast on castingacross.com if you want to learn more about the um, on the fly fly rod holder. But it's a little two inch by two inch cube. Um, I have one of the prototypes, but it looks like the final product is going to look just like it. So check it out and kind of stay tuned. You'll definitely want to pick these up 
once they go into production because there's, like I said, a lot of different things that you can use it for, and it's awesome to support somebody who is just kind of chasing a little dream of uh, making something that can uh, be a better mousetrap. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.